I've actually titled the sermon today, Why Jesus Came Into the World, His Reasons. Why Jesus Came Into the World, His Reasons. We're going to look at that. Man, there's a lot of ideas out there in the world about why Christ came, who Jesus is. I mean, there's philosophies all over the place, that he was a good teacher, that um, you know, he was like a guru in, in certain Buddhist areas. I mean, I've read stories where some people think that he like, went over and trained like during the silent years, uh, in between his teenage years, that he trained and learned the ways of Buddha and then meshed you know, like, uh, Judaism and Buddhism together to kind of make this love gushy thing. Some people think he's been raised from the dead, some don't. Some think that he's the son of God, some don't. They have philosophies all over the place as to, as to why he came. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. But why did he actually come into the world? And I know, have any of you ever been in a situation before like where someone might have been making like some assumptions or accusations or, or maybe they were saying, yeah, well, you know, Carrie, he thinks this, that's what he thinks, and someone else is like kind of putting words in your mouth or whatever, and then it gets back to you, and I don't know if it's like the kindergarten story or whatever that goes around the room, but in either direction, what you hear is you're like, whoa, that's not what I said at all. That is just not what I said. And um, sometimes it's good to give ourselves in and, and, and situations where communica- communication can be real difficult sometimes, you know. You say one thing and then people don't, maybe they don't receive it exactly the same as what you said, or the, you're like, I try and use psychology Sometimes I, I've, I work for the Federal Aviation Administration, and uh, so they pay uh, for me to do like leadership training occasionally. And I went to this leadership effectiveness training course, and they teach you how to do like um, active listening. I'm not a very good listener, but I, I can learn from a book, and some of that's really hard. I try to use some of that on my on my wife, on Reg. She's back there, and uh, it doesn't always work out very well. Usually, she can figure out you're using that stuff from that leadership effectiveness training course, and and. Um, you know, where they say that it's supposed to help communication um, and do away with roadblocks, I found that some of that stuff actually creates roadblocks in my marriage. So in either direction, um, I try not to do it. And I'm not very sneaky about it either. But so it's good to have, a, when, you're, when you're communicating, to be heard. And we like to be heard. We like to have our cases heard. We have a judicial system where people can bring evidence. And don't you think it's a good idea to actually hear what Jesus actually said that he came for. I mean, let him speak for himself. Um, in the Bible, actually, there's a lot of different reasons that are recorded, um, that the Holy Spirit has recorded, and this is definitely not an exhaustive list. This is actually just a, a little list that I came up with, you know, as I was looking through the Gospels. But here's some of my favorite that aren't from Jesus' words, that aren't on your list. But in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, John says, You know that Jesus appeared to take away sins. And there's a really good purpose as to why Jesus appeared. He says, look, you know Jesus appeared to take away sin. And so that's really clear what he came for. He came in here to, to deal with the issue of sin. In fact, he goes on and he says, and in him there is no sin. A couple of verses later, this is, it's really, I, I really, it's like, for me, it just kind of builds in its uh, crescendo of truth. And in 1 John 3, 8, he says this, that the devil... He's been sinning from the beginning, but that the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And I'm like, that is cool, isn't it? That's a good place for an amen. I'll give you guys another run at that. I did for the 8 o'clock, you know. I'm like, I'll give you guys another run because it's a good place for an amen or however you want to do, clap, whatever. So here we go. It says this, that the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Yeah. There we go. That's what I'm talking about. Last week at, on Friday uh, in, our, in our junior high group, our track group, we were going through the book of Revelation. 
and I had a lot of fun with that. The book of Revelation is, is an incredible book that just kind of explodes. There's some scary stuff in there, too, about the judgment of God, not for believers, but there's some scary stuff about what God's going to do. But it paints a picture of the risen, ascended. All authority has been given to me. Jesus, who, 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 that's who he is now. Like he came the first time, it says in Hebrews, to deal with sin. But uh, we were talking and I was saying, yeah, one of the enemies that's going to be overcome, and we see this really clearly in the book of Revelation, is death. One of the enemies is death. And so in the Psalms it says that God says, the Lord said to my Lord, Jesus actually quoted that too, the Lord said to my Lord, I want you to sit right here at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet. I mean, wouldn't you like to be there to hear God say that, you know? When Jesus ascended, Mary's like clinging on to him. She's like, look it, I got, Mary, I love you. I love, go tell the brothers that I've, I'm raised. I'm heading up, man. I got to go up and see the Father. So he gets up there and the Lord's like, I want you to sit down at my right hand. I'm giving you all authority. And pretty soon, I'm going to make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet. And one of those enemies is death. So I said, well, hey, look, he's going to conquer death. And one of the young people in our, in our truck group looks and raises their hand and says, well, how's he going to conquer death? How's he going to do that? And I go, well, that's a great question. And the question is actually answered in John. How did, how did Jesus conquer death? How did he do it? How did he do it? Where's the power of sin? In fact, let's even back up and talk about the devil. The devil is actually wielding a sword, isn't he? The devil is wielding a sword, and with that sword, he's trying to kill people. And actually, he's doing a pretty good job. He's done a decent job at it from the beginning of time until now. That sword that he carries, that sword is sin. Okay, that sword of sin, and he's trying to slay people with it, and ultimately the power of death is held in the fact of our sin. So when John says the reason that the Son of God came was to take away sin, was to take away and totally, completely obliterate the enemy's ability to take out people anymore. He just totally disarms them. And the way that he does that is by dealing with the issue of sin. So in one fell sweep in one plan from the, from the Father before the foundation of the world at the cross, Jesus takes care of sin. And when he does that, he takes out sin, he takes out Satan, and he takes out death. And our enemies are removed. I mean, this is an amazing plan that God has. And phenomenal that Satan actually was involved, you know, by like coming into Judas Iscariot for the betrayal. That's an interesting thought to think about because ultimately that betrayal and leading to the cross was going to lead to him being crushed on the head, just like it says in Genesis, right? So John says, he appeared to take away sins. He appeared to destroy the works of the devil, okay? In Hebrews 2.14, Paul talked about this a couple weeks ago, that he came with human flesh so that he might, through death, destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Do you see what I'm talking about? The devil is actually wielding death as a weapon. The way that he holds it over us is through sin, and Christ has obliterated it and made an opportunity for us to be forgiven of all of our sins. All of our sins can be washed away as white as snow. I love this passage. Um, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I, I've read the, the book, the, um, the Lord of the Rings. I actually like The Lord of the Rings. It's a great story. When I read that book, I was, I was down in Oklahoma City. I read it like in a week. And if you've seen, like the whole thing is really thick. I mean, I was staying up at night because I, I was kind of like single, even though married, I was away. 
on travel. So I was like up till like 1 o'clock at night reading, and I'll be reading it at work on my breaks and stuff. And I was thinking, man, this is just an epic tale. It's a huge tale. It's humongous. It's got romance in it. It's got like good guys. It's got nasty things. And there's like, there's knights, there's armors, there's swords, you know, there's love relationships going on in the middle of all this craziness and stuff. And all this stuff's happening. And when I heard that they were going to make it into the movie, I'm like, there's just no way they're going to be able to put that sort of an epic tale up on, t- up on the screen. It's just too big of a story. It's just too big. Well, the Bible is all of those things, and even the things in stories like that that grip our hearts that we like, I think all of those things are just metaphors. They're pictures for what's actually contained in this book. The sum of them are actually in here. So some of the stuff's really cool. Here's one of my favorite verses, too, about the destruction of the devil. You guys are going to like this one. Another purpose for Jesus, Isaiah 27, verse 1. Isaiah 27, verse 1 says this, In that day, this is going to be another good place for an amen, okay? In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword. Now, where in the world is the Lord's hard, great, and strong sword? Where is that? It is, it is at the right hand, and where is it coming from? Do you know where it comes from? It comes out of the mouth of Jesus. The sword actually comes out of the mouth of Christ. So Isaiah is prophesying about Jesus. With his hard, great, and strong sword, he will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, here comes the amen part, and he will slay the dragon in the sea. Amen. Isn't that awesome? He's going to slay the dragon the bad guy is going to be taken out and Jesus is going to do it and I think you and I, all of us who believe, we're going to be there. We're going to actually, there's some verses I think that have already been spoken. Like, Jesus, like God probably said, sit here until I make all of your enemies at you. But there's other verses in this book that you and I are going to hear and we're going to be there immortal to hear some of the stuff. And then like stories like the Lord of the Rings, as cool as they are, they're going to look like a coloring book in comparison to the truth of Jesus Christ when he's revealed. And it's going to be amazing. All right, so all those things. And there's a lot more reasons in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But let's take a look at ten reasons according to Jesus as to why he came. Let's give him, I'm going to step out of the way, and give Jesus an opportunity to actually speak specifically, this is why I came into the world. Ten reasons why. Not exhaustive, but we'll get there. All right, number one. Number one, to fulfill the law to fulfill the law. That's number one, to fulfill the law. This is out of Matthew 5.17. I have the passages in there if you want to flip to, your, to the pages. It's various scriptures. I'm not in a single uh, passage today. So Matthew 5.17, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. That's why I've come. I've come to fulfill them. Now we have a problem. Human, human beings have a problem. We actually acquired something in the garden that actually equated to us dying. It's deadly for us to have. Actually, God can have it, and he does have it, but humanity did not have it until Adam took that fruit and ate it. And you know what that is? That thing that killed us when Adam ate that fruit is the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil. And I'm not going to go into detail, but think about what is it about the knowledge of good and evil that kills us but doesn't kill God? He can have it, but we can't. Isn't that what, the, what Satan actually tempted Eve with? He, she's like, he's like, look it, you guys don't got it, but God does. And if you eat this fruit, you'll have it. And all the time on the other side of the fruit is the sword that Satan has. And he's like, death, death, 
death. I want to kill them. And it worked out, although God has a plan to actually redeem it. The law is actually holy and righteous and good. The knowledge of good and evil that we have acquired has corrupted us in such a way that we actually feel, because we want to worship ourselves, that's at the core of the, law, of the knowledge of good and evil, that we feel like we have to add stuff or do something to actually acquire righteousness. We do that. We're, we're incurably religious. And I'm not talking about using the word religion in the right way. I'm saying that we have, even within Christianity, I mean, we battle with the fact that our righteousness comes from faith. It's a gift that God has given to us. But the law is holy and righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's just not a mode for which that God actually gives us righteousness because no one can keep the law. If you go out into the street and you ask someone, what do you think the Ten Commandments are there for? Why do we have them in some of our, in some of our um, uh, places where we have judges and judicial systems? They have some of the Ten Commandments on there. And they'll probably say, well, it's a model for me to live up to. And according to the Bible, and after Paul preached on this, is that the right answer? No, that's not the right answer at all. It's not a model. It's a tutor. It actually, the law comes to actually give us conscious, our soul, conscious awareness of how far short we've fallen of God's standard. It's not a model for us. But for Christ it is, because he's perfect. Think about this. How long have, have animal sacrifices been going on? How long? Did it start when, when Moses was up on, the, up on the mountain and he received the vision for the tabernacle and, and, the, and the sacrificial system? Is that when it started? No, it started even before then, right? I mean, yeah, in Genesis, God actually sacrificed an animal. Cain and Abel came, right? Abel brought an animal. Cain brought some, some grain. So somewhere along the lines, they received a form of revelation. They received a form of revelation. Now, maybe their minds were better than ours. Maybe God knew that after the flood, like my memory is so bad I can't recall stuff, so he decided to put it in a book for me. Because I can't recall stuff. You know what I'm talking about? That's what I think. I think th- weird thoughts like that sometimes. Maybe they didn't need a book before the flood because like, they were still kind of corrupted but better. Like their memory, they could recall stuff. I mean, they were alive for 900 years. Man, you know? So um, even after the flood, one of the oldest books in the Bible is the book of Job, right? And if you look at how old Job was when he died, you have to say, you've got to look at the age of his life and you say, well, he must have lived right after the flood. He, he was probably right there, right after the flood, within the first few generations. Noah was like still alive, and Job was like walking around. Okay, because you could tell by the length of life that he lived. Take a look at, at Genesis chapter 5. Look at the longevity of life. Look at what happens to lives of the patriarchs after the flood. That's why our lifespans have been reduced. And in that, um, physically reduced, not spiritually, praise the Lord for that. But in that, um, Job actually, do you remember? I mean, he didn't probably have the Mosaic law. And what did he do all the time for his kids? He's always offering sacrifices. He's like, bring another sacrifice over here. I'm going to actually offer a sacrifice for me, and I'm going to offer a sacrifice for my family because they're having a New Year's Eve party over there. So I'm just going to do it in advance. And they do that, you know what I'm saying? So now all that stuff came down, but he was offering sacrifices too. And all of this is pictures, right? And then God gets it's like the mosaic law beautiful picture of all these things the 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 hat with the thing it says holy to the lord the sash the beautiful thing rocks on the ephod all this stuff animals being sacrificed it must have been incredibly brutal the sacrificial system must have been incredibly brutal blood all over the place we know that to be true because we're on this side of the cross that without the remission of sins there is no forgiveness 
And even though we are not made righteous on the basis of us keeping the law, because we cannot, the law actually still does apply to us, doesn't it? How does it apply to us? Because Jesus is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Look that one up. That's amazing, actually. But he's a high priest. He's actually a high priest according to the illustration of what God's put forward in his law. And he offers a sacrifice as a high priest, because that's what the high priests are supposed to do according to the law. And what sacrifice does he offer? He offers himself as a sacrifice, a much more perfect sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin, but Jesus says, I'm going to offer myself according to the will of the Father, and he does it. So he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. If you wrote down prophets in there, some people actually filled out the, the little blanks in advance to see if they could get, get it right, correct, in advance. So prophets, I would give you an A if you put prophets down to the law, okay? In Luke 24, 25 through 27, after his resurrection, he was walking you know, on the road to Emmaus with the two guys, and, he's like, and he says, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for the Messiah, the Christ, that the Christ should suffer, suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, all of the things concerning himself. The whole book is about Jesus. That's why we sing songs like Beautiful Jesus, Matchless in power, all of your glory, you're amazing. Everything is about you. Everything revolves around you. Romans chapter 8 actually goes even farther, and this is just a preclude to what's going to happen next week, when it says that God has done what the law could not do because of the weakness of our flesh. God did because he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, here it is, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus did. He condemned it. That's like he went over to Satan and he took his weapon right away from him. So he can't kill people. He just disarmed him. He totally disarmed him. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might see the law, might be fulfilled in us. Why? On the basis of us keeping the law? No, because of Jesus. So the law still is holy and righteous and good and is beautiful, a beautiful picture of Christ. And there's details of it. I'm telling you, sometimes... You know, maybe you guys read through the Bible in a year sometimes, but when I get reading some of the law stuff, and if God, I always ask God, open my eyes so I can behold wonderful things from your law. And you'll be reading something, you're like, whoa, I just saw Jesus in some like really weird place that I never saw him before because it's all about him. He does that. All right. Number two. He came to do the will of the Father. He came to do the will of the Father. John six thirty eight says this, Jesus For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he's on a mission. He's got a mission. He's got a purpose. He's like, I've come to do the will of him who sent me. In Hebrews, I think the Holy Spirit actually, he pre-writes Jesus' words in the Old Testament. It's amazing. And that's for us, you know, because he's the Alpha and the Omega. So he tells us in advance so that we can have you know, might like seep through some of our density and that we could see. But he says in Hebrews 10, a quote from the Old Testament, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And so Jesus again is saying, I have come to, in John all over the place, he's like, the Father has sent me, the Father has sent me, the Father has sent me. Even the words that I speak are not my own words. I don't even do anything of my own initiative. Everything that I do is from the Father. I have come to do his will. 
In Luke 22:42, you guys know this passage where he's like in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's suffering and he's sweating drops of blood. And uh, I don't know, I pray this quite frequently actually. I think the Christians, we do this because God keeps putting the cross that we bear in front of us and we're like, oh dude, I've got to be crucified again. I've got to be crucified again. And then we pray this prayer along with Christ. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Father, we want your will, as it's done in heaven, to be done here on earth. I have come to do your will. I love this too where it says, I've come down out of heaven. I've shared this before, but I had this guy that I worked with who was like a conspiracy theory person, you know. He believes in vampires and aliens and stuff. And, um, and so, like, don't, don't miss these humorous, excellent opportunities to share your faith in Christ. So I, I actually jumped right on that. I was like, well, I, you know, I believe. I believe in aliens. I know one came down. In fact, it's very documented. It's probably the most documented activity in all of history. And I'm not talking about Area 51. It's not in the president's book. It's not in there, all right? If you guys have seen anyway, National Treasure. So, all right. Because he came down from heaven not to do uh, his own will, but, the, but his Father's will. Point number three. He came to bear witness to the truth. He came to bear witness to the truth. John 18, this is actually when Jesus is actually, you know, he had probably six trials. Are you aware of that? He had, after his arrest, he had probably six different trials that he stood. Every one of them was bogus. Every one. In either direction, at one of those trials, he was standing before Pontius Pilate. And in John uh, 18:37, Pilate says to him, Are you a king? Are you a king? What are these accusations that are being brought? Is this true? And Jesus answers and said, You say that I am a king. And for, check this out, for this purpose, I was born. Again, his own words. This is why I've been born. Why? Because I'm a king. And for this purpose, I have come into the world. Why? To bear witness to the truth. To bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my words. And you know the infamous question that still, if you go on Google, if you get, open up a computer, go to Google and just type in, what is truth? I don't know how many millions of hits you'll get. You'll probably get a zillion YouTube videos. There'll be crazies on there like me recording themselves. The truth is Jesus. The truth is Jesus. There'll be other people out there saying all kinds of stuff. What is truth? Who knows? Pontius Pilate even asked the question, what is truth? We know what truth is though, don't we? I know it sounds a little bit arrogant, but I'm not boasting in myself. I'm boasting in Christ because Jesus said, when Thomas asked him, when Jesus said, I'm getting ready to take off, I'm going away, and where I'm going, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And Thomas is like, what, you know, what are you talking about? We don't know the way. And Jesus is like, yes, you do. You know the way. Let's quote it together, ready? I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He's bear witnessing to the truth of God, the, the global truth of God, the love of God, the beauty of God. Everything that he did was already written of large portions of it in the Old Testament, fulfilling it, bearing witness. In fact, at one point in time, the Pharisees actually came up to him and they're like, dude, you can't, you can't do what you're doing. You're like boasting in yourself, man. You're like giving give witness to yourself. How can you do that? Well, first off, he's the one being in the universe that can boast in himself and not sin. God can do that. He actually can do that. All of the rest of us, we're like plants. God is the soil, and we've been created to, to... We get our life from somewhere else. He defines what life is. He doesn't, 
He doesn't get life from somewhere else. He is the definition of existence. He is the definition of life, okay? He is the truth, and he's bearing witness. And Jesus even tells him, yes, I can bear witness to myself. But there's also other witnesses too, and even in your law it says where there's two or more, three, two to three witnesses, that a truth can be actually accorded. And he says, I'm telling you the truth, I'm bearing witness to the truth, I have not lied. Can any of you convict me of sin? No. And then he says, my works bear witness of what, of what I'm saying. In other words, all of the miracles Jesus did, he didn't just do willy-nilly miracles. Many of the miracles, especially the miracles in John, if you read them, they were all platforms for teaching. He's like, boom, I feed 5,000. I am the bread of life. Boom, there's like, I am the living water. He heals someone who's blind. I am the light of the world. And so he's using these miracles and using them to attest to the fact of the truth. And he says, and there's another that bears witness. It's the Father. The Father bears witness for me too. And in fact, some of them even heard his voice, the Father's voice. Amazing. In Revelations 3.14 to the church of Laodicea, Jesus says this, the words of, and he's talking about himself, the words of the, and this is his name, I am, the Amen. That's what he says. This is my name. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus is the true witness. He came into the world to witness to the truth. If you are of the truth, you will hear what he has to say. If you're of the evil one, we continue to believe a lie. I would hope that we would have that broken down. Number four, he came as a ransom for many. He came as a ransom for many. This is one of my favorite verses um, because I think it just really pictures the heart of Christ. And, and like, I want to know him more and more and more, but this really gives us a very clear example of who he is. Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's like a couple of different things in this verse. Primarily, number one is, even though he's a king, he came to serve everybody. That's amazing. He's a king. He created everything. He came to his own, not just the Jews, man. He's holding stuff together by the word of his power, and yet we rejected him. And we still, people are still rejecting him today, right? But he came to serve, and the second part says, I came for this reason, to give my life as a ransom for many. He is Aslan. He is the one who gave up because we ate the Turkish delight. You know what I'm talking about? We ate the Turkish delight and he's given his life to set us, Edmund, free. That's what he's doing. For this reason, we need, because of what has happened, we need a ransom to be paid for us because we have sold ourselves into sin. We have been alienated from a holy God. When Jesus gave his life as a ransom, our slave masters, sin, death, and Satan, the devil, had to give up their claim on us. And the end result is, when Christ pays the ransom, we get to be adopted by Father God. And we no longer have to fear him as judge, but now we call him Father. And we receive a spirit I'm going into Romans 8 again, which says, Abba Father, all right? Abba Father, that's going to be awesome. All right, Paul put it like this in Galatians. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
That's the reason. One of the reasons, I've come as a son of man, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. It's phenomenal when you read the Gospels. If you read the Gospels closely, you know, like the, the, um, the disciples, the 12 disciples that Jesus chose, they're really a lot like all of the guys when they come to my house on a weekend and they're playing Super Smash Brothers on Nintendo. Okay? What happens is, and this is an amazing sight, if you haven't seen this, either you need to come and visit because it's a phenomenal thing, or I'll, I'll try and get a video of it sometime. But what happens is, is ego starts to come up. They're like, I am the greatest. No, I am their greatest. No, you're going down. No, you're going down. And they have their little buttons, you know, and things are going crazy on the screen, stuff's blowing up, and all this stuff's happening. And if you read the Gospels, the disciples were like that all the time. You know what I'm talking about? They're like, no, I am the greatest. No, I'm the greatest disciple. Oh, yeah, well, I'm going to ask him to sit at his right hand. Oh, yeah, well, I'm asking my mom if he'll ask her if I could sit at his right hand. I mean, that's what's going on. It's just like, like Nintendo. They're like, well, I'm the best at Mario. No, no. And they're all, they have no idea at the beginning anyways what it really meant to follow Christ and to be a servant. You know what I'm talking about? Even after they eat communion at the Last Supper on the way to the garden, Jesus is just really grieved. And they're on the way to the garden. They're on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And they're still arguing about who's greatest. Now, I think God allowed that because not that long after that, what happened to them all? They dropped their Nintendo controllers and they were out of there. Okay? That's because they were all dispersed. That's what the prophecy said, that they were going to strike down the shepherd and the sheep were going to be scattered. Ultimately, the Spirit came, praise the Lord for that, and turned them around. And you know, almost every single one of them died a martyr's death for the resurrected Christ. Every single one of them. So, Shepherd John, he was boiled, it turns out, actually. I don't know if you know that, but... Um, Part of church history says that he was actually boiled and he didn't die though and then they exiled him on the Patmos and that's when he received the vision. So that's another story. You could take a look at that, read that in church history. Not in the Bible. Not in the Bible. Okay. So God pays this redemption. A redemption of the ransom frees us to be part of God's family. We had run away, but God pays this ransom and we get redeemed and adopted. I love that picture of adoption. Aren't kids precious? I love babies. Babies are cool. I mean, it's scary. Don't get me wrong, because this world is corrupt and it's difficult, but babies are sweet. And babies without parents, doesn't it just break your heart? Like, I want to find parents. And, and God is all about going out and looking for kids. It's amazing. All right, I'm going to start speeding up through these points now, just in case you were wondering. Number five. All right, number five. Point number five. Jesus says, I came into the world to glorify God in my death. I came into the world to glorify God in my death. John 12 verses 27 through 33, says this. Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And here it is. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Why? To die. And then he says, Father, glorify your name. How? Through him taking his son, putting him on the cross, nailing him to the cross, putting him up, Right, so he's suspended and hanging on a tree, cursed as anyone who dies on a tree, and Christ became a curse for us, and God takes the sin of the world and places it on his son. And that's what happens at Calvary. So that uh, redemption might be. And you know what's happening? The glorification of God. The glorification of God. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, and this is what God said. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. 
The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people unto myself. He said this to show what sort of death he was going to die. For this reason, I came for this purpose. I'm going to dismantle sin. I'm going to dismantle Satan. I'm going to dismantle death. And I'm going to allow adoption to be opened up to the world for all who would come. And the way that I'm going to do this is I'm going to die on the cross and it's going to glorify my Father even as I have up until this beginning. I'm going to obey him to the end. And Philippians talks about that. He became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him now. We no longer serve a a Savior that has perished but one that has been raised and exalted, you can't even look at his face because his face shines more brilliant than the sun at noonday, it says in the Bible, on a clear day. And you can't look at the sun. In fact, if you were to look at him, John actually fainted down as a dead man. Jesus had to go and and raise him back up in Revelation. All right, point number six. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Number six. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. This is an amazing verse. Luke 5, 31 and 32. Jesus says, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I mean, when do you go and visit Nimsy? When do you go over there? I mean, as a patient anyway, sometimes you might go over there to visit people who are sick and they're in the hospital because they're sick. They're not there hanging out because it's a fun place to be. It's not a fun place to be. And you go there when you're sick. That's why you go there. That's why you would get into the emergency room or you get checked in for something else. And so Jesus says, those who are well, they don't have a need for a physician. They don't have a need for one at all. Todd? Yeah. 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 If you're hurt, if you're sick. And Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Isn't that interesting? Because why? How many are righteous? None. Not a single person is righteous. And so in, in Corinthians, you have this picture. It says, we preach Christ and him crucified to the whole world. And Jesus says, you must repent. I've come to call sinners to repentance. It's pretty interesting, actually. We don't talk about that word very frequently anymore. I don't know why. Because if you actually do a word study on the word repentance, it actually occurs quite a number of times in the New Testament. And I would say and make an argument that repentance is actually a requirement for salvation. Unless you've repented, you have, you're not saved. You haven't been forgiven of your sins. But here's the key. Faith and repentance comes at the same time. When Jesus says, unless you believe, you will not see the kingdom of God. Is he speaking the truth? Yes, he's bearing witness to the truth. And if he says, unless you repent you will not see the kingdom of God. Is he talking out of two different ways? No. Did he say them both? Yes. Why? Because faith and repentance come at the same time. It's not something that we do. It's a gift that God gives. It's an attitude. It's a recognition of, oh my goodness, I am sold into slavery. I'm in the slave market, man. I'm boxed up in that small little room and it's a mess and Christ has come in and in that darkness, the light has broke into my life and he's setting me free from my slavery. Redemption has been made. He's paid the ransom for me. And I've now been set free. And so I'm turning from my old ways 
that locked me up in there, and I'm turning towards God. I'm turning towards God. And I do that by faith. By faith. In Luke 19.10, it says, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Don't you love that about him? And don't you love those parables that are like, where he goes and he looks for the lost coin and he leaves the others? He leaves the other coins and he goes and looks for the lost one and then they lose one sheep and he goes and he leaves the 99 and he goes and he looks for the lost sheep. That's you and me. We're the lost sheep. That's me. And he came and he like, you know, it says that in the Psalms that he comes and he picks them up and he coddles them like a shepherd does his sheep. He's caring for his sheep and he goes to seek and to save the lost. He's calling sinners to repentance, okay? He's calling them. Jesus came to seek and to call sinners to repentance. First, a ransom needed to be paid, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Two, then, there, then he could successfully come and say, look at, I can forgive you of your sins. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. I have the authority to do it. Because I've paid the ransom, I can do it. Come to me. Repent and believe upon me and you will be saved. All of this is based upon the fact that he paid the ransom. Number seven, he came to give sight to the blind. He came to give sight to the blind. Another great story. Illustrations. Sometimes there's some difficulties in life, I believe, that God allows to teach us about his mercy, to teach us about his grace, to teach us more about Christ. In this case, Jesus, in John chapter 9, heals this man who's born blind, and it stirs up a big ruckus. He's such a rebel. Jesus is such a rebel. Man alive. He's like, he's passionate. He's fervent. I mean, and, and he goes into the temple and starts whipping people. I mean, you can't do that at the commons. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, but he's doing that. He's just so passionate and amazing. And in John 9:39, he says, and this is an interesting play. I'm going to show you. For judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who do may become blind. It's kind of like the other thing. You know, I haven't come to call the righteous. I haven't, there is no one righteous. How many of us can actually see correct spiritually? Zero. None of us can. We need God to give us like glasses to see Christ properly. So Jesus came to actually give sight to the blind. In John chapter 12, 46, he says, I have come into the, into the world as a light, so that whoever believes in me might not remain in darkness, in the darkness of sin, on the slave ship being sold somewhere, okay, by Satan. He came to give us back our sight. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Bible says that you can't understand anything about God. In fact, even in Romans, Paul covered this. None of us would seek after God. None of us understands God. None of us can see God. We're, we're, sin has totally ravaged us. We have no ability whatsoever. We're just blind. We think we're smart, but we're not. And then Christ comes and he takes the blinders off. In fact, in Corinthians again, it says that the devil is trying to hold blinders on non-believers, isn't he? We can't see them, but we know it's true. Satan is actually gripping on people's eyes, trying to keep them from seeing the truth. And Jesus says, I've come to remove those blinders. And he can do it because he's taken them out at the cross. Not totally. It's going to happen. Some more stuff's going to happen in the future. Jesus came to open people's eyes so that they can see the light and walk in it. Our problem is not just slavery needing a ransom. It's not just our sinfulness, our lostness that needs God to call us out of that lostness. 
Our problem is also moral blindness. We can't see God without Christ being involved. And so Jesus says, I've come. We're simply blind to spiritual realities that are crucial for us to see and embrace. And without the mind of Christ, we cannot do it. But in Christ, all things are possible. And so he's opened up the doors. Number eight, Jesus said, I have come to divide households. This is a difficult one. Not one that's talked about very frequently, especially right around the Christmas time. We're all like singing songs about peace and goodwill and that Jesus is the Prince of Peace and so he's come to bring peace. Well, Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, Jesus actually says something a little bit different than that, at least for the time being, and I still think it applies. Matthew 10, 34 says, Do not think that I have come into the world to bring peace to the earth. Is that shocking? Let me read that again. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come into the world to bring peace to the earth. I mean, isn't, I hope that that's shattering some false beliefs that maybe you have. Well, didn't he come to bring peace? Well, he did. But it's maybe not the same sort of peace that we think it is. And look at what he says. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Oh, another sword. Another part of the epic tale. Another part of the saga going on of the world and humanity and God and Christ and Satan and sin and you and me. I came to bring a sword. For I have come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Maybe some of you have actually experienced this before. I know I have. I have some very precious people that I love, that my relationship and intimacy and that relationship has been completely cut off because of Christ. Which is interesting, because Jesus is like the lover of our souls. I don't understand that. I know that it's true because of spiritual realities. Realities that I cannot see, but I see it worked out. I see the fruit of it. In Luke chapter 12, in a parallel passages. A parallel passage, Jesus says this, I came to cast fire on the earth. Well, that's interesting. That doesn't sound like, you know, like happiness and, and all this other stuff that's going on. I came to cast fire. I'm going to burn some stuff. That's what I'm going to do. Actually, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you can read that. That's, that's scary. When he returns, he's coming back in flaming, with, in flaming fire with his angels to deal out retribution to those who do not know him. Those are the people who do not know and do not have eternal life. That's not a pretty picture. But he says, I've come right now even to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, speaking about the cross, and how great is my distress until it's completed. I really am not looking forward to it, but I'm going to do it because it's the will of my Father. And then he says again, do not think that I have come to give peace on earth. No, I tell you, but rather division. He came to start a war. The war, Satan had already won. You hear what I'm talking about? In, in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, it says, through one transgression, condemnation came to all of us. The war was over. We were already dead. It's done. It was a done deal. Jesus came to say, I'm here, and I'm going to start bringing some smackdown, and I'm looking to start me an army. And I'm going to raise up dead people to do it. That's that picture in Ezekiel. I love that picture in Ezekiel where God actually makes that army out of dead bones. That's you and me. This is amazing. So Christ came to bring division, not peace. And he goes on, this is a good, they will be divided. One house will be divided. There will be five in there. There will be three against two and two against three. That means there will be three people in the house actually believe and are part of the kingdom of light and the other two are following Satan. 
And there's division, even under the same roof. It happens. It happens in our own families. Jesus brings a division. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Is this true or not? It's true. Now here's the thing. The point is not about division and strife. That's not what Christ is after. He is the Prince of Peace, and ultimately, the peace that surpasses all understanding that is ours, in our mind at least, that God can give us, ultimately, in the end, it will. The war will end. But the war is still on. It's still on right now. The war is going on. This is not settled yet. There's still much to be said. And the words, salvation has come, and now the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our God, has not been said yet. It will be said. And Satan will be kicked out of heaven. And he will be bound. And Christ will rule for a thousand years. And this current heaven and earth will pass away to a new heaven and a new earth when death is settled underneath the feet of Christ. And God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. But for now, game on. And we need to be active participants in faith. Not just sitting on the sidelines, you know, letting the world go along. We need to be participants in this epic saga. I mean, it's sweet, dude. We got swords. We got armor. We got, like, head stuff, boots. Christ has given us everything that we need. Even demons. I think about this sometimes. But, you know, like, when the, when the, de- when, uh, when the seven sons of Sceva tried to cast out those demons from that dude, you know what I'm talking about? They were, like, Jewish exorcists. And they're like, come out of... You come out of that man in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. That's what they said. And do you remember what happened? Do you remember what the demons said, though? They're like, I know who Jesus is, and I know who Paul is, but I don't know who you are, and I'm going to whoop you guys. And he did, and he actually stripped them of all their clothes. I mean, they ran out of the house naked. Now, here's what I'm getting at. I think about this sometimes. Do you, do you, do you think, like, think with me with spiritual eyes. Demons actually know some of your names, and they don't like you. They don't like you at all. They don't want to come into contact with you. Others of us as Christians, they could care less. They're like, don't worry about that one. That one never prays. Doesn't even open up their book. Doesn't even open up the Bible. Don't even know the truth. I know more scripture verses than that Christian does. They can't even apply the truth in their own lives. Game on! Let's get in the game. You know, I'm not going to sing High School Musical, right? Number nine. (laughs) I did that for Amber. (laughs) All right. The point is not division and strife. The point is the fact that there's an allegiance that takes place when we're regenerated. There's something that happens when a person is ransomed, when they're sought after by the shepherd, when they're paid for, when when their blinders are removed and they're given sight, something radical that we cannot see takes place inside of a heart and we're like, I am so for this man. He is my king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I'm not just going to bow my knee in the day when everyone has to bow their knee. I'm going to bow my knee right now. He is worthy of everything. I, am, I worship this king. He is my savior and God and he has redeemed me. And what happens is, it's not that our allegiance to our families grows weary. or I think it actually gets stronger. But our allegiance to Christ is so much greater, it can't even be compared. Jesus says, you must love me greater than any of your family members at all. And that happens. He produces that in us. And then what ends up happening is this rift comes. They're like, dude, you're psychotic. I, had that, I actually had that happening one time. 
And, and I had a family member come to me, and they're like, dude, we like you a lot, man, but you just got to cool it with this Jesus stuff. And I'm like, I can't. I'm on fire, right, David? It's like fire in my bones. My allegiance to the risen Christ is intense. I didn't ask for it. It happened. It just happened. I did not ask for it, but I'll tell you what, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for it. And rather, I would rather live my life as a fool in the eyes of the world for Christ than live and getting accolades of men in this earth that mean absolutely nothing that are going to burn. All right? He came, and lastly, or no, no, not lastly, sorry, number nine, he came to save from divine condemnation. You guys know this one. This is an interesting play. John 3, 17 and 18, Jesus says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. It was already condemned, Romans 5, 18. But in order that the world might be saved through him, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In John 12, he says, 47, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but I came to save the world. Isn't that interesting? It's an interesting play where he says, I didn't come in to condemn the world or to judge the world, but earlier you saw in point seven, he did come to judge the world. I'm going to leave that little bit of what looks like to be an oxymoron for you to study. There is a judgment, and Christ is the judge of the world. God has proved that there is going to be a judgment because he's raised Jesus from the dead. He did not come in to condemn it. It was already condemned. He came to bring on the battle. He came to redeem people and to adopt people. Lastly, number 10, he came to give us eternal life. We need to quote this one together, right? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In John 10.10, Jesus said this, The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And I would, I'm going to equate the thief as being Satan. could be the world too though. Like Herb spoke about last week, the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for things that this world has to offer, that in the end they just leave Christians bankrupt. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and to destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. What sort of life is that? What is, an, what is the abundant life in John 10.10? 10? Is it a life where we have like our mortgage paid off and all of our kids through college and the loans paid off and we get to go on vacation five weeks a year and... We get to go to all these really cool places and you know, we're, we, we have all of our bills paid, no bill collectors. We have physical health for a little while. I mean, is that the abundant life that Jesus is talking about? Yeah, what is the, what is the abundant life? Could the abundant... Go ahead, Tom. What's that? A life with no end? Eternal life? Absolutely. Could the abundant life actually be me being crucified right now? You know, in... Last century, I hear tell that more Christians died for their faith in, the, in that century than in all of the previous centuries combined. There's Christians today that are getting up right now that are exalting in Christ, just like we are right now. And there's some that are in prison right now. Some may even be being tortured right now. Some even being killed right now for their faith. And I'm telling you right now, on their lips, if the Spirit is speaking through them, even in their death, do you know what they're saying? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. 
And they're saying that because they have an abundant life that the world cannot see because they are blinded to it. But hopefully, their eyes would be open. I think it's happened before, where even some executioners, you know, actually, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, some of these people seeing the faith of these believers who died with such incredible grace and humility and forgiveness ended up converting to Christianity, the ones who were taking their physical life. And that's because we ought not to fear the ones who can kill the body, but rather fear the one who can take your body and soul and cast it into hell. That's what Jesus said. In John 10, 27, you know this verse too. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. What's the application to this message? Well, the first application is, if you're not in the battle, if you're still in the, in the domain of darkness, and today Christ has removed the blinders from your eyes, he's given you sight to see, and you can recognize that Jesus has paid a ransom for your sin, the number one application to what we're talking about today is for you to believe. He's calling you to faith and repentance. Come to him. Don't, today is still called today, so people can still get saved. So come to him. Fall at the feet of Christ. Adore him for the king that he is. Let him put the armor on you. Take up the sword and get in the game. Get in the game. For those of you who are believers, listen to what it is that he said. These ten points that I kind of pulled out of the Gospels, just kind of layered out what Jesus said, this is why I've come. In Romans chapter 8, again, there's at least the third or fourth reference. It says that we are being conformed into the image of Christ. So these missions on that little piece of paper on your lap right now, they're your mission. They're my mission. It's actually Christ's mission in us. We don't live any longer. It's Christ who lives through us. But we're taking on more and more and more of the attributes of Jesus. And so we begin to look like this. We can't save people, but what we do, and this has been our banner in our, in our youth ministry for some time and for me personally, I hear the Spirit asking me, and I ask God, how can I make you famous? How can I make Jesus famous? How can I just increase your name wherever I go? I want to be an aroma of Christ wherever I go. How can I do that? Of course, the answer is always, by my grace. It's all God in us doing the work. But we should be taking on these attributes, proclaiming the goodness of our God, trumpeting his truth, declaring his faithfulness, proclaiming the fact that a ransom has been paid, an indescribable gift has been given, and Christ will in no way ever cast out anyone who comes to him. Isn't that amazing? And so freedom has been purchased. Satan will be vanquished. Sin will be done away with. Death will be completely removed and there will be a new heaven and a new earth forever. And this little tiny short life here on earth is is going to be so minuscule in comparison with eternity. Let's get in the game and live for him. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, we just give you thanks and we, we pray, Lord, that if there is anyone here that doesn't know you, that you would give faith and repentance to them, Lord, as a gift greater than any Christmas gift that they could ever receive. It's better than that million-dollar lottery ticket that was given. It's without worth. I mean, it's, 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 
you can't measure its worth at all. And so, Lord, bring faith. And for those of us who know you, help us just to delight ourselves in you. Help us to see your Son in greater and greater measure over the next 12 months, over the next weeks. Help our faith to increase. And as we do that, Lord, I would pray that you would help us to make Christ famous in our lives. Not because it's something that we have to do, but because we're so filled with love for him, we can't help but bubble over in talking about him, about how beautiful he is, about how beautiful the cross is, about how amazing the resurrection is, about the future of the new heaven and the new earth, the hope that has been given unto us that could never be destroyed. Even if they destroy the body, they can't take away our hope. And one day, hope and faith will be done away with. But for now, it remains. In the end, it will just be love. And Lord God, help us to, to bring this message of adoption to the world wherever you would have us to go. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said,